Shogcast, where the biggest flair since the 1970s, with Megan Argo, John Field, Jen Gupta, Leo Huckvale, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison, and Christina Smith. The Jogcast, November 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Libby Jones and joining me today is Jen, Christina and Leo. Hello guys. Hello. Hi. We've got some very exciting stuff coming up and I think we should let Jen go and tell us about Jogpub. Yay. Yay. So you might know from previous shows that we're having a, another Jodpub, Jodpub 3. This time it's going to be in London and we're all very excited about that. It's on the 12th of November and because the Jogcast team don't get to go to London very often, we've got a full day planned. So if you want to meet us in the morning, we will be going to the Royal Observatory Greenwich, meeting at the entrance at 11am. We're probably going to spend about three hours there, hoping to take in the live Sky Tonight planetarium show at 12.45. So feel free to come along to that. You will have to pay in. We can't wrangle you free entry. And then in the afternoon, we're having Jodpub proper. We're going to the Silver Cross, which is near Trafalgar Square, and we're going to be there from three o'clock in the afternoon. There are also fireworks at five o'clock over the River Thames, if you so wish to go to those. Libby and I will probably still be in the pub. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What else? If you want to find us, we'll be in Jogcast t-shirts, or you can tweet at us. We will try to keep an eye on the Twitter account. And there's information, all this information is on the website at jogcast.net slash jogpub. And if you don't see that on the front page of the website, uh, there is a bit of a problem we're having with um, a hard, you might need to do a hard refresh on the website. So to do that in Firefox, you press Control, Shift and R. So if you haven't think there's been a Jogcast episode for a couple of months, it's probably because the website has not been updating properly on your browser. But it really is there, so there's could be loads of Jogcasty goodness that you haven't seen yet. It's something to do with the cache, I don't know. I don't understand computers that well. Oh, I think some people's browser store a lot of information so it loads quicker but then they don't get the new updated uh, shiny stuff. That makes sense. So in the show this time we talk to Rob Izzard about the mysterious J stars and we find out where you can see the night sky in November. But first before all of that here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Blue stragglers in NGC 188. Ocean like water in Comet Hartley 2. And a 2000 year old supernova mystery. For much of human history, stars were assumed to be static points of light which did not change. Now we know they are much less constant, giant nuclear furnaces which evolve over timescales much longer than a single human lifetime. Stars spend most of their lives fusing hydrogen to make helium, and the lifetime of a star depends on its mass. More massive stars have more hydrogen, but they burn hotter and faster, using up their fuel much quicker than their less massive cousins. For a particular stellar cluster made up of stars formed at the same time, we expect to see stars at different stages of evolution depending on their mass. But for older clusters, the most massive stars will have already evolved, becoming red giants or exploding as supernovae, leaving a cluster with no hot blue stars. But many old stellar clusters in the Milky Way do, in fact, contain a small but significant population of hot blue stars, which appear to be much younger than the rest of the cluster. So how did these so-called blue stragglers come to be? There have been many suggestions as to the origin of these apparently young stars, and now a pair of researchers have found evidence which narrows the possibilities. Aaron Geller and Robert Matthew of the University of Madison, Wisconsin, looked at the blue stragglers in an open cluster in the Milky Way, and examined the properties of their companion stars. The two most likely formation mechanisms for blue stragglers are the transfer of material from one star to another in a binary or multiple system, or collisions and mergers of stars. Many observations in detailed theoretical models favour formation through stellar collisions, but these new observations provide strong evidence that mass transfer is the dominant mechanism, certainly in this particular case. NGC 188 is an open cluster with an age of around 7 billion years, containing many blue stragglers, including a high percentage with binary companions. The researchers studied these binary systems, looking specifically at the 12 examples with orbital periods of around 1,000 days, they found a surprisingly narrow range of companion masses, with most of the blue stragglers having companions with masses of 0.55 times that of the Sun. The two researchers model populations of blue stragglers formed through a number of different processes, including the transfer of mass from both main sequence and white dwarf companion stars, and collisions between stars in binary and triple systems. 
The predictions which best match the observations from NGC 188 are from models where the blue stragglers are the result of mass transfer from a white dwarf in a binary system. This new study shows that a collisional origin for blue stragglers is far rarer than expected, casting doubt on whether it occurs at all. Although merges in triple systems are not completely ruled out by the data, the observations suggest that this is a far less likely scenario. Further observations using the Hubble Space Telescope are planned by the researchers, and these should allow them to distinguish clearly between these two formation mechanisms. A large part of the Earth's surface is covered by water, but the composition of the bulk of the rock which makes up our planet suggests that the early Earth would in fact have been a pretty dry place, so where did all the water come from? Now, an international team have found evidence for at least one possible source of terrestrial water. The Earth's composition is similar to that of a class of meteorite known as enstatite chondrites, a type of meteorite thought to have formed in the early solar system. The early Earth would have been so hot that volatile compounds such as water would have evaporated, leaving the Earth's surface as a much drier place than it is today. The fact that we have oceans implies that there must have been an additional source of water sometime after the planet's formation. One possibility is that water and other volatile material could have been delivered by the impact of asteroids and comets, but measurements of the isotopic content of water in comets has so far not matched that seen in the Earth's oceans. Deuterium, also known as heavy hydrogen, is an isotope of the element hydrogen containing an extra neutron in its nucleus. On Earth, the ratio of deuterium to hydrogen is roughly 1 to 6,400, so the source of the Earth's water, whatever that was, should have the same ratio. The ratios of deuterium to hydrogen in the six comets measured so far, all with origins in the Oort cloud, are much higher than the deuterium to hydrogen ratio measured here on the Earth. Now, data taken with the Herschel Space Telescope have shown that at least one comet has a deuterium to hydrogen ratio similar to that in the Earth's oceans. In a paper published in the journal Nature on October the 5th, an international team led by Paul Hartog at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research shows that Comet Hartley 2 has a deuterium to hydrogen ratio pretty close to that of the Earth's oceans. Unlike the other comets where this ratio has been measured, Hartley 2 is thought to have originated in the Kuiper belt much further out in the solar system. This time last year, Hartley 2 passed closer to the Earth than at any time since its discovery, allowing highly detailed observations by both ground and space-based telescopes. Observations made with sensitive instruments on board the Herschel satellite allow the scientists to determine the amount of heavy water present in the comet. Both water and heavy water, water where one of the two hydrogen atoms has been replaced by an atom of deuterium, have characteristic emission patterns in the infrared part of the spectrum. Even though the amount of heavy water contained in the comet is very small, the sensitivity of Herschel's instruments meant that it could be detected and measured. The results show that, for Comet Hartley 2, the ratio is 1 to 6,200, very close to that on the Earth. While Comet Hartley 2 itself was not the source of the Earth's water, this result implies that similar comets formed in the same region of the early solar system could have been. As is so often the case, however, the results also raise further questions. It was thought that the deuterium to hydrogen ratio would vary with position in the solar system, with the ratio becoming larger at greater distances from the Sun. Hartley 2, however, comes from further out than the other six comets for which this ratio has been measured, but has a smaller deuterium to hydrogen ratio. This implies either that this particular comet originated closer to the Sun than was thought, or that the distribution of deuterium in the young solar system was not what we assumed. Either way, while adding weight to the theory that the Earth's water is cometary in origin, these results still leave some unanswered questions about our own solar system. When stars explode as supernovae, they release large amounts of fast-moving material into the interstellar medium. Just as a smoke ring blown into the air soon loses energy and slows down, the spherical shell of material ejected in a supernova explosion eventually loses speed, and the rate of expansion slows. Just how quickly the material slows down depends on the density of the surrounding material in the interstellar medium. So if you know when a particular supernova occurred, and you know how fast the material should have been moving because of the explosion, you can calculate the size which you expect the remnant to be. A long-standing mystery with one particular supernova is that the actual size measured today is some two to three times larger than expected, based on what we know about supernova explosions, the speed the ejector should be moving, and the estimated density of the interstellar gas in the Milky Way. Now, in a paper published in the Astrophysical Journal, a team led by Brian Williams of North Carolina State University have found evidence why this particular supernova remnant is so much larger than expected. 
The remnant, known as RCW-86, is thought to be the remains of a supernova explosion seen from Earth 2,000 years ago, the first known recorded supernova in human history. Knowing the date of the explosion from records made at the time, astronomers calculated the size of the remnant today, based on the normal density for the interstellar medium, and how fast the ejected material appears to be moving. The result is two to three times smaller than what is actually measured by telescopes today, assuming the remnant is at the measured distance of 8,000 light-years. The speed of particles in the remnant today is too slow to have created a remnant this large in just 2,000 years. The logical conclusion is that the initial supernova occurred in a cavity, a bubble-shaped region of lower-than-average density, allowing the ejector to expand faster than normal until they reached the edge of the bubble and were forced to slow down. Normally, cavities such as this are expected from core collapse supernova, the type of explosion which results from the death of a star with a mass greater than eight times that of the Sun. Such stars have powerful stellar winds before they explode, and these winds push away the surrounding interstellar medium, effectively blowing a low-density bubble. The team used the Spitzer and WISE infrared satellites to image the entire remnant of RCW-86, covering an area on the sky more than 40 arc minutes in diameter, larger than the full moon, and compared these images with data from optical and X-ray detectors. Hydrodynamic models of the system suggest that the most likely scenario which explains the observed properties of the nebula is a supernova explosion into a low-density bubble created by the central object some time before the final explosion. Such a model fits the observed properties of the remnant, but does not distinguish between a core collapse or type 1a origin. However, the large amount of iron seen in the X-ray observations is a strong indicator that the supernova was far more likely to have been a type 1a, the kind of event resulting from material falling onto a white dwarf in a binary system. This finding is particularly interesting because these low-density bubbles, such as the one seen in RCW86, were previously only associated with core collapse supernova. And finally, in the second high-profile re-entry in as many months, the ROSAT X-ray observatory made its fiery descent into the Earth's atmosphere on October the 23rd. Launched on June the 1st, 1990, its mission ended in 1999, but due to having no onboard propulsion system, a controlled re-entry was not possible. The Röntgen satellite, to give it its full name, was a German spacecraft which made the first all-sky X-ray imaging survey. Originally intended to operate only for 18 months, the mission was highly successful, ultimately operating for a total of eight years, until the failure of its primary star tracker in 1998. On Sunday, October the 23rd at 0150 Universal Time, the satellite entered the atmosphere somewhere over the Bay of Bengal. Although it is possible that larger parts of the craft may have survived re-entry, it is not yet known whether any parts of the satellite actually reached the ground. Thanks for that, Megan. Now here's Christina and Libby talking to Rob Izzard about J-STARS. Joining us on the Jogcast today is Professor Rob Izzard from the Arlonga Institute for Astronomy, and I would like to say welcome back to the Jogcast. It's nice to be back. So, you've been giving a talk at the University of Manchester about the mischievous J-type stars. So, what is a J-type star? Well then, let's go back a step first, before we describe them. There's a whole group of stars in the sky, which are big, red giant stars, very bright, we see lots of them, called carbon stars. And as you guessed from the name, that means they have carbon in them. It's very easy to see in the spectrum. You don't need a quality spectrum, so you can spot them very easily. Uh, the J-type stars are a subset of these carbon stars. And they're mischievous because all the other ones we think we understand. At least we think we know where they came from. Normal these N-type normal carbon stars, they're, not, they're normal, but they're not boring. But they come from the very evolved stars, burning helium and hydrogen. So they get this carbon that's built in the core, and they drag it up to the surface, sort of convective mixing type thing, like a giant cloud. There's other ones, like the R-types. The R-types that we think are mergers, they're quite fun. There's the CH-type, which are in binary systems, they accrete. But the J-types, they're... They're about 10% of all the carbon stars, and up to now we have no model at all for how they're made. So carbon stars are evolved stars, so stars like our sun that have gone past the main sequence and towards the end of their lives. That's right. And these will have carbon in. That's right. And then there's a subset of four, type of, four different types of stars, yep. and then we have our 
mischievous J-type stars that we don't really That's know right. much about. So the, the thing is, to make the carbon, you have to take three helium nuclei, these alpha particles, and slam them into each other. And to do that, you have to have already done the hydrogen burning and be well into helium burning. So they're very evolved stars. And these J stars, yes, they make up a subset of these carbon stars. So you said we know a lot about the other type of stars, and then these are the mysterious ones. What do we know about the other stars, and why are these J stars different? Uh, a good example were the CH stars, for example. If you look at those, they are all binary stars, and they all show the signature of being a companion. So you can imagine, imagine if the sun was throwing off huge amounts of material, some of that hits the Earth. I mean, we see that in these solar storms, right? Now imagine if the sun is throwing off a load of carbon and some of that hits the Earth, it would stick to the Earth. And that's what a CH-type star is. So in those, we look at them, and they're all binaries. Converse to that, the R-type stars are all single stars. So we think they all come from mergers. Because if you look at stars in the sky, about half of them are binaries. So if you see a single group of stars that are all single stars, and they don't have companions, they must be mergers. So those two are quite interesting. So by a merger, you mean a binary, a double system, where two stars are combined to make one star? Exactly that. Exactly that. That's right. And it, it, very separately from this, but very recently, were observations of a, a merging star where we could measure the period of the star. And you see the period. This is the time it takes for the stars to go around each other. So for the Earth around the Sun, that's one year. But for these stars, it was much less. And you could see it getting shorter and shorter and shorter until eventually there was a huge outburst of light from the system and now the star is a single star. It's a very rare event, but we have seen it probably twice now. Are these gas giants merging together or do we not know anything about their... There are t I think there are two that I know of that are confirmed mergers where we have, uh, we've actually seen the period change until they merge. Uh, but they were very different types of stars. One of them was a big giant merging with a, a companion star. In the other case, it was a very young star that was merging with its companion. Merging is something, I think, that happens at many different stages in the evolution of stars. They can be young, they can be old. So that's two of the stars, that uh, the sea stars that you described. Yep. What about the other two? So the N-type stars are the end of the evolution for stars roughly one and a half times the mass of the sun up to three times the mass of the sun. So they go through hydrogen burning, which is like the sun now, and then they go through a period of helium burning, and eventually the, the core becomes rich in carbon, because that's the product of helium burning, and then the envelope expands and expands, gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and some of this core, which has carbon in it, is mixed to the surface. So these stars that we see, um, there's many of them in the sky, they're very bright, you see them in companion galaxies, such as the Magellanic Clouds. They're very easy to spot. Uh, these are the N-type carbon stars. And those we understand pretty well. We've been studying them for about 50 years now. So they're pretty well understood, qualitatively at least. So. But then the final type is the J-type. Now these are special because they have what's called an isotope of carbon, the C13, which is slightly heavier than most of the carbon in stars. If you take three alpha particles and you hit them into each other at high speed, high temperature, this is, the, this is what is done to make the carbon. This is the helium burning. But each of these alpha particles contains two protons, two neutrons. So they have a mass of four. There's three of them, and three times four is 12. So why is it in these stars we see a lot of carbon-13 instead of carbon-12? How is it made? And that's a big mystery. We really do not know. Some of our listeners may be familiar with carbon-14, which is another example, for instance, of an yep. isotope of carbon, which is using radioactive dating. Sure. So this is, the carbon-13 is a just a different isotope abundance. Yes, um, and you see it on the Earth. If you look at the carbon on the Earth, a lot of it is carbon-13. If you look in the sun, it's, uh, I think, one part in 90 or so in the sun is carbon-13. So it's quite natural for carbon-13. It's a stable isotope, so it, it, uh, it continues to exist. So in these J stars, you see the carbon-13 ratio different to the other C stars. Yeah, so most carbon stars have a ratio similar to the sun, maybe about 50 or 100 or something like that, large ratio. Um, this is quite natural because a lot of carbon-12 is made. So if you divide the amount of carbon-12 by 13 and you've got a lot of carbon-12, that means you have a large number. 
If you look at the J-type stars, the ratio is always less than 10, which implies something has happened to the carbon-12, something weird that we don't understand. And the best process we know for doing this is hydrogen burning. So hydrogen burning will deplete your carbon-12 and convert it to carbon-13. The problem is hydrogen burning then proceeds to take your carbon-13 and turn it into nitrogen-14. If you add a proton to 13, you go up to 14, and that happens to be nitrogen. So you can fine-tune your model, your stellar model, to give you exactly the right amount of carbon-13, but you have to be very careful not to destroy that and make nitrogen. And this is incredibly difficult to do. And while it can be done, in theory, the number of stars predicted by this mechanism is tiny. And yet we see 1 in 10 carbon stars is a J-type star. So something else is doing this. And what could that something else be? Well, nobody was really sure, uh, and we're still not really sure, but we've got a wacky new idea. The thing is, if you look at the abundances in these J-type stars, it's not just the carbon-13 that is large. There's, they also show a lot of lithium. They also show very strange nitrogen isotope ratios. This is nitrogen 14 to 15. Also oxygen ratios. There are three stable isotopes of oxygen. That's 16, 17, and 18. And the ratios show a great scatter in these stars, whereas in most of the stars, you don't see that. Can we infer, how do we know about all these ratios? Are these all from spectra? These are all from spectra. Yes, exactly. High re you need high-resolution spectra. It's very difficult work. So um, instruments like Herschel, for instance, a space telescope. Yeah, absolutely. The higher resolution you can get, the better. Absolutely. And then you see lines of all nitrogen and carbon. Well, the thing is that the wavelength of the line depends to some extent on the mass of the um, atom. So if you're looking at carbon-12, what we look at in the lines are actually molecular lines. So that's carbon joined to another carbon, say in C2. Uh, now, usually, this will be a carbon-12 joined to a carbon-12. This is the most common. But in a J-type star, the carbon-12 is sometimes joined to a carbon-13, which gives you a line at a slightly shifted wavelength. And so instead of seeing one line, you see a, a sort of sister line next to it. That is, uh, it's a little bit weaker, but you always see these in the J-type stars. They're very prominent. Whereas most stars that are carbon stars, you just see one set of lines. And this is how we know that some funny chemistry is occurring, and we don't really know why that's happening. Exactly. We don't know why it's happening. But we get a clue from these isotope ratios. We get a very big clue. Some of the J-type stars have what are called non-equilibrium values of carbon-13. Now, what this means is that it's not normal hydrogen burning that has done it. In normal hydrogen burning in stars, you can go down to ratios of around carbon-12 to 13 of around 4. You cannot go below. It's very, very difficult. So we looked at the physical sites where you could go below this because some of the J-type stars are down to about 2. The only place in the universe we know where this is done is in explosive hydrogen burning. And there's only one way of doing that, and that's in what's called a thermonuclear nova. A thermonuclear nova. Wow. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that sounds pretty amazing. Well, for those of you out there who uh, like looking through their telescopes, these are also known as classical novae. So that's the less, I mean, that's the less dangerous way of putting it, I think. But what they are is when you have a, a, a white dwarf star. This is a star that's about the size of the Earth, but about half the mass of the sun. So it's very, very dense. And you accrete material on it in a binary system from a companion. So accrete, you, you actually gave a very good example about this. I want to let you go and explain what accretion is. Accretion is when you have, you take a companion star and put it very close. And what happens is it's so close that the gravity of the white dwarf sucks material off it. And the star is just a normal star like the sun, but it cannot sit where it is so close without this material being sucked across onto the white dwarf. So the white dwarf becomes covered in a layer of hydrogen. Now, the white dwarf is very, very massive, so this layer gets squashed on the surface, and it gets the pressure goes up, the temperature goes up, and eventually you reach the point where the temperature is so high that the hydrogen ignites. However, the conditions on a white dwarf are such that this ignition is essentially a thermonuclear bomb exploding on the surface of the white dwarf. 
Now, we've all seen what happens when you explode a nuclear bomb. It's a big, big explosion. Now, imagine it being much, much bigger, and that's the one you get from the star. And it's so big that it drives off a shell of material from this star. I don't know if you've seen uh, the end of Star Wars where the Death Star explodes. Everyone knows that. Imagine that coming off a star. That's what a nova's like. Now, your companion star, your little solar-like star that's like the sun, it'll get hit by this. This material will slam back into it. And some of it will then stay on the companion star and pollute it. And the great thing about a nova explosion is that the material that's burnt, you start with lots of carbon-12, and in the nova you can convert some. In fact, this drives the initial explosion. You convert it to carbon-13 by adding protons, and that releases energy. And that's what drives the, the bomb, essentially. But because it expands very, very quickly, it doesn't have time to convert the carbon-13 into much nitrogen-14. So the ejector from the nova is very, very rich in carbon-13. Some of this then hits the other star and pollutes it with the carbon-13. And we think that may be how this star turns into a J-type star. So this J-type star is, unlike the other carbon stars, being an evolved dying star. This J-type star can just be a normal, everyday, happy star in the main sequence. That's right. And not an evolved one at all. It could, but the problem is that these types of stars are very hard to spot. If you go out and you look in the sky for main sequence stars... They're very hard to see because they're so dim. I mean, if the sun itself is not that bright. I don't know if you've seen the pictures from space probes flying off out into the edge of the solar system. Even when they look back, the sun is not really that bright compared to the surrounding stars anymore. So it's very hard to spot them when they're little dwarf stars like the sun. But all stars, as you know, as they get older, they get bigger and fatter, just like humans. So what happens is that they get bigger, fatter, brighter, and then you can see them. That's what we call a selection effect. So some stars you're more likely to see because they're easier to see. So we see most J stars when they're giants. So are there any other possible explanations for J-type stars other than Novi? I'm sure there are, but I don't think anyone's thought of them yet. Um, other than fine-tuning models of uh, AGB stars, these are the very evolved stars. Some of them may give J-type stars. But you have to be very careful because the, the spread of luminosities, we see J-type stars that are very bright, but we also see some that are not so bright. And that means that they cannot be the most evolved stars. And remember, only the most evolved stars make the carbon. So to get the carbon, you need a very, very bright star, and these are not bright. So that's a, a problem for the models otherwise. But other, I've not seen any other good model of the J-type stars. Yet. That's why this work is quite exciting, I think. I mean, it involves explosions, uh, and it's also it comes up with an idea to solve a problem that's been around for a long time. doesn't mean to say there aren't problems with it. Um, for example, most novae are oxygen-rich, and an oxygen-rich nova will not give us a carbon-rich star. But there are a few novae that have been observed that are carbon-rich. So it's not completely crazy. Um, there's also another interesting statistic about these stars. A lot of them have disks around them that are oxygen-rich. How do you get an oxygen-rich disk from a carbon-rich star? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. There are some speculations in the literature, but it's uh, other binary-type models and stuff like that, but nothing that's really convinced anyone yet. So by disk, you mean material surrounding the star? Apparently so. Um, the disk itself is quite cool. So when you look in the infrared spectrum, it's very easy to see. And you can see all sorts of details about the structure of crystals and dust in the disk. This is very, very useful to us. I'm told by the experts on disks, which I should say is not me, that the disk is almost certainly what we call a circumbinary disk, which means it surrounds the whole system. Uh, it looks just like circumbinary disks in other evolved stars that we know about. So... But we still don't know how it's made. We just know that it is there. And the central star is carbon-rich, and the disk is oxygen-rich. You can see that from the, the silicates in, the, in these disks. So, I mean, silicates are like little particles of dusty, sandy stuff. So I think you know more about that than me. So <laughs> save that for the next one. Okay. Um, so how many J-type carbon stars are there that we know about? Okay. Uh, in total, of course, I mean, it depends where you look. 
the galaxy is very difficult to say because you don't see all the stars. Many of them sit behind the galactic disk. But I can give you statistics for the Magellanic Clouds. For example, the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a great place to look because we know the distance. So when we get luminosities, we know them pretty well. And uh, in that, there's about 1,500, it's 1,500 carbon stars, of which about 150 are J-type. So it's quite a lot. There's a lot of stars we can look at. And of course, the problem with the Magellanic Cloud is it's still a reasonable distance away, so it's a bit harder to get detailed spectra for everything and look at every isotope in detail. Carbon-12 and carbon-13 are the easy isotopes. The other ones are even harder to see. So I think after this work, there's a lot of follow-up work we could do to look at many of these stars to look for signatures of other isotopes that are, for example, made in novae, such as lithium and these strange nitrogen-14 and 15 isotopes. I think we could do with looking at those. And have we seen any novae in the large Magellanic Cloud? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. So the novae we've seen are in the galaxy, of that's which right. the majority have, have been oxygen-rich novae. That's right. And then there's some carbon-rich novae. What's the difference between the oxygen-rich novae and the carbon-rich novae? Is it the chemicals produced that we see afterwards? That's right. So the nova expands. and You can take a spectrum of the nova as it expands and look at the amount of carbon and oxygen in this expanding shell of gas that becomes like a nebula around the nova. Um, however, to my knowledge... No one has really taken detailed spectra of the star, the donor star in the nova. It may be very difficult to do, because it would be enshrouded by this expanding shell. And novae go off in these systems once every 100,000 years or so. So unless the nova has already happened, it's very difficult to say where it will happen next. You just look at it, and it looks like any normal binary star. And you can't say if it will explode next week, next month, next year. It's every 100,000 years. It's very rare. Uh, so that going back is difficult. But uh, it may be possible. That's something I want to look into. So we're going to have to wait 100,000 years to be able to test your hypothesis about this being a Nova star. There are other ways to test it that are easier, I think, than that. I think if we look for the telltale signs of the Nova itself in the J stars, it'll be more obvious. Uh, and then when you look at the J stars, we need some binary statistics on them. We don't have any at the moment. We have circumstantial evidence from these disks that they're circumbinary, but it's circumstantial at the moment. So we need more direct evidence for these. But that involves a long-term monitoring program, and that's, that's a lot of resources. So we have to persuade people that this will work. So all these J stars have disks? No, only 10%. But the disk may not survive that long. So if the disk only lives for a few thousand years, you wouldn't expect to see all of them. I mean, 10% would be 10,000 years out of 100,000 years. So if the disk can live for 10,000 years, then that makes sense to some extent. But still, I think the disk is the hardest thing in our model to explain. It's very, very difficult. Could it be different mechanisms that make the ones with disks and ones without disks? That's certainly possible, yes. I mean, our model is a general model for making the J-star itself. And we decided at the beginning we would attack the other 90% before we get to this 10%, because that's, they're, they're even more mischievous. So we'll get to those, though. I think there, there are possibilities for making them. Uh, one possibility is that as the system, as you have many, many novae in the binary system and the J-star is being polluted, what will happen is because the nova ejects material into space, the mass, the total mass that's in the binary star system will go down because it's being ejected. And as that happens, the system will get wider and wider. This is because the gravitational pull between the stars is less, so they can move further apart. Uh, and this is fine, but it means that the accretion efficiency, the amount of material that hits the companion star, will, go, will get much smaller because it's further away, which make, no, makes sense. Now, is it possible that the nova starts off being carbon-rich and eventually becomes oxygen-rich? That may happen. And if you dig down into the surface of the white dwarf, eventually it becomes oxygen-rich. It starts off carbon-rich and then becomes oxygen-rich as you dig deeper. And this is because deeper inside the star, it was hotter so it could burn carbon-12 itself into oxygen. So remember I said carbon-12 has 12 nucleons? Oxygen-16 is 12 plus 4. That's just another helium. So 
it may be that the NOVA itself that is time-dependent, we've never really taken that into account before. I don't think anyone's ever taken that into account. That's something to look into, and we hope to do that soon. And is this NOVA a one-time-only occurrence, or can it happen multiple times in the system? Oh, it must happen multiple times. Uh, and typical NOVA gives off one ten-millionth of a solar mass of material, which is tiny. Um, but... These systems can live for the nuclear lifetime of the star, which is 10 giga years. That's 10 billion years. So if you uh, if they go off as a nova once every 100,000 years, that's a lot of novae. Yeah, that's a lot of thermonuclear explosions <laughs> yeah, going exactly. on. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. Are there any differences between the star itself, the ones that have disks and the ones that do not have disks? Like, for example, are they all heavier than average, lighter, or are they... We don't know. Okay. It's very difficult to measure the mass of the star because it's not something you can just look at a star and say the mass is one solar mass or five or ten. Um, in general, you need to know if it's in a binary. And from the binary motion, so this is the stuff that Kepler did a few hundred years ago, you can tell how massive the stars are. The problem is most of these stars, or in fact, as far as I know, we don't know if any of them are binaries. No one's ever monitored them. And for those in the Magellanic Clouds, it will be difficult. And indeed, in red giants in general, it's very difficult to get binary statistics on them. Because to look for a binary, you look for spectral lines that move. But they naturally move in these stars because these stars have big convection zones on the surface. Things are mixing around. It's very difficult to get an exact measurement of that. So these things are very difficult, very difficult to do. But they can be done. It's just no one's really looked at the J-stars. I think one other reason nobody's looked at the J-stars in great detail in this sort of way is because there was no model to test. And as long as there's no theoretical model, people say, well, we know nothing, and that's it. So, and you know, maybe they're not so useful for cosmology. So, <laughs> But I actually, they, I say that, but they are relevant because the systems that make novi, the more we can understand about those, the more we understand about accretion onto white dwarfs, and it's accretion onto a white dwarf, albeit at a slightly higher rate than in a nova, but very, very similar binary system. These systems make type 1a supernovae. And type 1a supernovae are critical for calculating how fast the universe is expanding. So all astrophysics is related. And I think the work that we're doing on this has implications for that, for that field as well. Thank you very much, Rob, for telling us the mystery one piece at a time and giving us all the clues and a model about the J-type stars and a possible explanation for why they're there. Thank you again for being on the Jogcast. Anytime. Thanks for that, Libby and Christina. And now we get on to the odds and ends, and I have nothing, so I'm hoping everyone else has something. You may have noticed that Royal Mail has released a new collection of stamps of famous landmarks, which Jodrell Bank, yay, has made it to the J-stamp. So it's the famous landmark for the letter J. So if you buy any stamps lately, try and keep a lookout for Jodrell Bank on there. Because it's cool and it's a very big, pretty picture of the dish. Is it just one picture of the dish? Or are there lots of different pictures and different stamps? Well, you could buy lots of stamps to see if there are lots of different pictures. But I'm pretty certain you're going to get the same picture of the dish. But it's maybe cool to get some letters with uh, the Jodrell Bank on there. And in fact... People could send us post if you happen to get one of these stamps so we can have some too. Or they could send us, they could get the A to M or whatever it is from this time and use all of the stamps apart from they might want to keep the jodrell, but that's still a lot of stamps they could use to send us postcards. Yes. There we go. Ooh, good points. Buy the entire booklet, yeah. And yeah. then keep the jodrell. That may be a slight plug for post people. <laughs> Just in case no one's noticed. That, that was really subtle. I think we did that really well. Yeah, I think we're very good at being subtle. Send us some post. <laughs> thanks, thanks Leo just to clear that, that please okay I have some information about the very large array which is calling for ideas for a new name it's recently had an upgrade and recently finished the upgrade and members of the public are being invited to submit new ideas for names because they want to rename it for some Ooh. reason that Ooh. we don't really understand and Jen no. is very against this well I just think it's a bit silly because even if they rename it, all astronomers will still keep calling it the VLA. I mean, yeah. I guess you'd have to wait a few generations before people started adopting whatever the new name is. So why are they trying to rename it? Is it because it's not very large anymore? Well, yeah, compared to Alma and like, the SKA, it's going to be mini, so it can't fact, really be called the very large array. In fact, VLA probably still stands because then it's not very large anymore. They could call it the NVLA. 
<laughs> you can go and suggest a word to be put at the beginning, so you might want to go and suggest that. You can suggest a full new name or just a suffix. Yep, you go. It's it's known as a contest now, and it's on namethearray.org, and it's open until the 1st of December, and the winner will be announced at the American Astronomical Society Conference in January. It's not a suffix. It's not a suffix, is it? It's a prefix. No. Yeah, um, so you can either go and... Um, suggest an entirely new name which i imagine lots of people have done or you can just go and suggest a word to put onto the front so you can just have a prefix so we've been calling it the evla where the e stands for extended or electronic electronic (laughs) or something we seem astronomers seem to put e in front of lots of things we've got e merlin and the e E elt or the et but the e never stands for the same thing so i get a bit confused by all of it but if you do decide to submit one, then post on the forum and let us know your suggestion. My suggestion's VLA. Yeah, Jen would appreciate it if lots of people suggested VLA. Yeah. Or EVLA. Would you be okay with EVLA? I'd be okay with EVLA. So, yeah. NVLA. <laughs> Shall we move on? <laughs> so I saw in the news recently that the Russians have been, Russian scientists have been looking at volcanic tunnels on the moon and have been thinking that this might be a good place to start up a lunar colony. Uh, <laughs> Sounds amazing. I think the the basic idea is that it would be kind of easier to build because you wouldn't have to build a structure so much, as in, and you could sort of fill it with a an inflatable kind of bubble to seal the cave, and then uh, live inside a bubble in a volcanic tunnel under the surface of the moon, which would be awesome. I've just but, got images in my mind of in Star Wars when the Millennium Falcon flies in, and then it turns out that it's the mouth of a monster. Yeah, I don't think I've been reading enough science fiction. Um, yeah. H. G. Wells' first Men in the Moon, I think there were. Uh, they uh, went to the moon and discovered that there were already creatures living down the tunnels, so it might not be <laughs> such a good idea. How inflatable would it be? Like, when you were walking, would it be, like, really bouncy to walk along? Because like so, awesome. that would be awesome. There are actually generate... Um, there's um, two domes that are being made out of um, carbon fibres, which are inflatable domes, called Gemini 1 and Gemini 2, by some companies that are basically for lunar or space oh. landings and they're making it they're, they're pretty massive and they're very very strong so they are just inflatable habitats for people to live on on this planet so maybe that can coincide with the russian space like tunnels that. that's thinking ahead that I one do. day one day we'll be living on the moon <laughs> lots of tunnels yes i do like the idea of all these tunnels um anyway on commercial going to places outside of our planet um there is an announcement that um, richard branson has dedicated the virgin galactic spaceport um, in New Mexico, and that is the the first commercial spaceport, which is going to serve um, White Knight Two and Spaceship Two, which is going to send passengers, paying passengers, paying passengers up into space. First question: Does that just mean that he smashed a bottle of champagne somewhere? Well, he actually upsailed down the side of it and <laughs> was swigging the bottle of champagne there. Swinging or swigging? Swigging. What I thought was cool about this actually was they started off with having uh, sort of load of dancers on a I can't remember what the name of the dancing troupe was but they were all on lines coming down they were all dancing sort of sideways on the building <laughs> so not like they were dancing in space or something and then, uh, then uh, Richard Branson comes down near the end and starts joining them in dancing wow. it's before he's had any champagne but he's, uh... second question the spaceship is just called spaceship. Now that's what you need for a renaming competition. Yeah. Spaceship 2. Okay. But it's carried by White Knight 2. So what happened to Spaceship 1? It was the prototype. Ah. And it worked, and then this one is better. So they improved it. And just called it Spaceship 2. Yes. Poor form. Yes. It was a bit rubbish. But they'll, they'll, I'm sure they'll rename the next one something more interesting, maybe. Spaceship 3. Probably. Ah. Um, but it's quite exciting, and they you have a two-and-a-half-hour flight up into space where you actually get five minutes of weightlessness Ooh. for a cheap and cheerful $200,000. So, All right, all right. I reckon uh, if we start saving now... Or if there's any very nice listeners out there who feel like sending me to space, <laughs> but also let me come back again. I just, just, just that sending you to space, uh, about the rest of us. Yeah, I, think I want to go to space. People there at least to, we'll, we'll both go, because I'll, I'll do the recording and you can... Uh, well, we'll be the space tour guides. We'll just interview or something. Jodcast from space. <laughs> oh, the possibilities. And if you'd like to know what you can see in the night sky while you're swanning off with Richard Branson, here's the November Northern Night Sky from Ian Morrison.
well, the night sky for November 2011. Well, you don't have to stay up too late to see the heavens now, which is really good for someone like me who likes sleeping. If you do look towards the southeast after sunset, you should see the square of Pegasus. It's the winged horse seen upside down. Down to its lower right, there's an arc of stars that ends up with the star Enif, and that forms the mane and the head of the horse. With binoculars, if you just move a little bit up to the right of Enif, you might find a little fuzzy blob, certainly obvious in a small telescope. It's M15, a globular cluster, a spherical grouping of stars that dates back, we think, from the origin of our galaxy. If you go to the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus, it's a star called Alpharats, and then go two stars curving round and up a bit to the left. That point turns sharp right, move past one star. The same distance again, you should again see a little fuzzy glow. And that's the core of the great nebula in Andromeda, the Andromeda Galaxy M31, visible to your unaided eyes. And I always think it's nice that the photons that your eyes are actually detecting left there around two and a half million years ago. If around the time of new moon, when there's no light in the sky, and it's really dark and the sky is so-called transparent, it might be worth, particularly with binoculars, moving back down to the star where you turn sharp right and carrying on a little bit to the left the same distance. You might see a little fuzzy glow there. It's M33 in Triangulum. It's the third largest galaxy in our local group after, first of all, Andromeda, second, we are, and then third, M33. Moving over and up, we have the lively W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia, very high in the sky overhead. If you work down towards the lower left, you come towards the constellation of Perseus. The Milky Way is running along there, so the sky is actually quite rich. About halfway between Cassiopeia and Perseus, you might just see a little fuzzy glow, and binoculars will show possibly two little fuzzy blobs together. A telescope will show two lovely clusters. It's called the Perseus double cluster. Coming down from there, we're coming into Taurus. And of course, we have that lovely grouping of stars, the Pleiades cluster, one of my favourite objects in the sky. And binoculars or a small telescope show it very well. Down to the lower left of the Pleiades is the Hyades cluster, a V-shaped. It makes up the head of Taurus the bull. There's a bright red star called Aldebaran, the eye of the bull. It's not part of the cluster. It's about halfway between us and the cluster, and it's moving in a completely different direction. It's actually a red giant star. And in fact, red giants tend to look orange, as does Aldebaran. Later in the evening, you'll actually see Orion rising in the east. That will be better seen in December and January. Or, if you like getting up early, as I happened to this morning, it was beautifully seen in the southwest. So it's a very nice constellation to observe. Well, let's have a look at the planets this month. In fact, quite a nice little array that we can look at. The most obvious is, of course, Jupiter. It reached opposition, which means it's actually due south around midnight, and pretty well nearest to us, on the 29th of October. It means that in the evening sky in November, it'll be beautifully obvious and fairly high up, which is really nice. It's in the constellation of Aries the Ram. The angular size is now getting on for 50 arc seconds, pretty well as big as it ever gets, because Jupiter is at perihelion when it's nearest the Sun. So as we lie between the Sun and Jupiter, it's obviously nearest to us. I can't think of any better reason to buy a small telescope if you haven't got one. To have a look at the equatorial bands and perhaps pick out the great red spot. And in the highlights, I've given the list of the times when the great red spot is on the central meridian. Just look for night sky in Google to find it. Well, Saturn passed behind the sun on the 18th of October. That's called superior conjunction and it will reappear in the pre-dawn sky during November. It lies in Virgo, 
shining at a magnitude of plus 0.8, just a few degrees from the first magnitude star, Spica. They get their closest, just four degrees apart, on the 14th of November. And by month's end, it'll be visible some 20 degrees above the southeastern horizon as dawn breaks. Now, over the last year or so, the rings have gone through edge on, so we haven't seen them very well. This apparition, however, they'll be much better seen, and if we do look at it this month, you'll find the rings are tilted at 13.5 degrees to the line of sight. So they are opening out, and with a small telescope, should show you the Cassini division quite easily. Mercury lies two degrees below Venus for the first half of November, shining at magnitude minus 0.3, but you'll almost certainly need binoculars to pick it out because it'd be very low above the horizon. But of course, don't use binoculars until the sun has set. As the month continues, Venus climbs up to the left whilst Mercury drops out of view and its magnitude falls and it just disappears from sight. So there is a chance of seeing Mercury early in the month. Mars is coming towards its apparition early next year. At the moment, in Leo, it's shining at magnitude plus one. And on the 10th and 11th of November, it passes very close to the brightest star in Leo called Regulus. By the end of the month, it rises before midnight. And before dawn, it'll be 40 degrees or so above the horizon. So it'll be quite well worth looking at, I think, with a small telescope. Its salmon pink disc may begin to show you some features, such the V-shape of Sirtis Major and the North Polar Cap. In the next month or two, it'll become even better to observe and get somewhat larger. Currently, it's about seven arc seconds in diameter. That will increase to over ten after Christmas. Well, Venus has also passed behind the Sun recently, and it's still on the far side of the Sun from us, presenting an 11 arc second disk which is about 90% illuminated. It will be visible to view just above the southwestern horizon at the beginning of the month. Magnitude is minus 3.8, quite low down though, so you might still need binoculars and a good low horizon to observe. But of course, wait until the sun has set. Well, finally, some highlights this month. One or two I've actually sort of indicated before. November the 11th, one hour before dawn. Mars is just 1.3 degrees from Regulus in Leo. And it remains close to Regulus for about five days around that date. Well, we do have a well-known meteor shower this month. It's called the Leonids, and it's on the night of the 16th, 17th. Probably best to observe around midnight because there will be a moon in the sky, and when that gets to high elevation, it will actually wash out the fainter meteors. So it's perhaps not the best year to observe them. It's the dust that's released by the comet Temple Tuttle, which rounds the sun every 33 years. And as the name implies, the radiant, the point from which the meteors appear to spring from, lies in the head of Leo the Lion, sometimes called the Sickle. I've mentioned Saturn. On the 22nd of November, there's a very nice grouping of Saturn, Spica in Virgo, and a thin, waning crescent moon. Should be nice to look at. And on November the 27th, you should be able to see Venus and a thin crescent moon just after sunset. And with a bit of luck, you might well spot the old moon in the new moon's arms. And on the night sky page, I've added a picture that I managed to take a few months ago, showing the old moon rather nicely. It's not a bad month to search for Neptune. And towards the end of the month, the 20th, the 27th, when there's no moon in the sky, is probably the right time to do it. It's in, in fact, Aquarius, close to the star Iota Aquarii, and I have a star chart on the night sky page to help you find it. Try and have a look, if you can, on the 22nd of November, because on that day, it'll be in precisely the position it was when it was first discovered by Gal and de Rest at the Berlin Observatory. So a bit of history there. We still have quite a bright comet in the sky. It's called Comet Garad. 
and one can see it with binoculars. It's in the constellation of Hercules, down to the left of the keystone, near the star Alpha Hercules. Not a very bright star, actually. Again, I put a little star chart. Now, Comet Garrett's actually quite far from the Sun. It doesn't really get closer than the orbit of Mars. That means, at the moment, it's actually not moving very quickly across the sky. It just moves around in a relatively small arc during this month. So it's quite an easy object to pick up with binoculars. It's about magnitude 6. If you found it, move up to the left, to the right-hand side of the keystone. And again, you ought to see another little fuzzy glow, which is the wonderful Hercules Globular Cluster, M13, the finest globular cluster that we see in our northern skies. Again, when there's not any moonlight in the sky towards the end of November, you have a chance to observe an asteroid. It's called Eunomia, and it's number 15, which means it's the 15th that was discovered. It actually gets quite bright. Magnitude 8. Now, that's not visible to our eyes, but a pair of binoculars on a dark night should pick it up. It's passing through Perseus, lying below Cassiopeia, high in the eastern sky this month. On the 28th, it's almost overhead, lying in front of what is called the California Nebula. Now, it's a lovely little reddish glow region, excited hydrogen gas, very hard to see visually, shows up well photographically. But nevertheless, that would be quite a nice time to try and see it. Again, a chart on the night sky page. Finally, you could observe the planet Uranus. Uranus and Neptune are both in the sky. It's got a magnitude of plus 5.8, so under a dark sky, you could see it, with your unaided eye. I was in mid-Wales this last weekend and using a dark sky meter I actually showed that we should see objects down to about 6.2 magnitude. So mid-Wales actually is quite a, a good area to go to observe the heavens. It lies in Pisces about 15 degrees below the eastern side of the square of Pegasus. If you've got a small telescope, and I hope you will have before long if you haven't already, then you'll see a small disk just under four arc seconds across. A rather attractive bluey-green colour. So there's a lot to see in November. We have long nights to do it in, which is great. I do hope you enjoyed. Thanks for that, Ian. And now John Fields tells us what you can see in the southern night sky for November. Kia ora and welcome to the November Jotcast coming from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. In our evening sky, our winter constellations of Scorpius and Sagittarius are sliding down towards our western horizon, whilst in the east, Taurus, Orion and Canis major rise, heralding the arrival of summer. Mercury and Venus will be close together in the western sky after sunset during the early part of November. By the middle of the month, they'll be close to the red star Antares, the heart of the Scorpion. Jupiter will be in the northeast, appearing as a brilliant white star and will be high in the northern sky by midnight. Having just passed opposition, Jupiter is at its closest to the Earth and it will appear at its brightest in our sky. Due to its circular orbit, Jupiter's size varies very little from one opposition to the next, whilst Mars has a more elliptical orbit, so its size and brightness will vary from one opposition to the other. Another advantage of opposition is that the planet is usually well placed for observing in the evening sky. Binoculars and small telescopes will reveal Jupiter's four largest moons which will change position from night to night. With larger telescopes, bending on Jupiter will become apparent and occasionally may see Jupiter's great red spot. The planet also appears a little fatter around the equator and this is due to the planet's fast rotation and it being made of gas and fluids rather than a rocky world like the Earth. The three brightest stars in our night sky can be found along our southeastern horizon. Brilliant Sirius, the brightest true star in our night sky, rises in the east. It is the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major, the large dog. The dog rises upside down in our night sky, so to us he is seen lying on his back. Sirius is 26 times brighter than our sun and just 8.6 light years away. It is twice the mass of our sun and it will burn for its nuclear fuel much faster, eventually becoming a red giant star. Orbiting Sirius is a remnant of the star called a white dwarf. This was originally a much larger star than Sirius that has used up its fuel much faster and evolved into white dwarf about 120 million years ago. This white dwarf has been nicknamed the Pup due to its diminutive size. 
It shines at magnitude 8 and is overwhelmed by Sirius's brilliance at magnitude minus 1.46. And Hara, the second brightest star in the constellation, is confusingly listed alphabetically as the fifth. It is a binary star about 430 light years away from our solar system. The main star shines at a magnitude of 1.5 and its total luminosity is estimated to be 20,000 times that of our Sun. If this star was at the same distance as Sirius, it would appear seven times brighter in the night sky than the planet Venus when it's at its brightest. This star is also one of the brightest extreme ultraviolet sources in the sky. Although bright, the magnitude 7.5 companion star can only be resolved in large telescopes since the main star is approximately 250 times brighter and its light overwhelms the companion star. About 4.7 million years ago, Adhara was about 34 light years away from the Sun and was the brightest star in our sky with a magnitude of minus 3.99. No other star has attained this brightness since, nor will any other star attain this brightness for at least 5 million years. Marking the base of the dog's tail is the star Wisdom, the third brightest star in Canis Major. This yellow supergiant star is about 1,800 light years away and 50,000 times brighter than our Sun. This star is expected to be only 10 million years old and in the next 100,000 years will become a red giant star prior to exploding as a supernova. In the belly of the dot we find the open cluster of over 100 stars called M41. M41 can be seen as a hazy patch to the human eye and in binoculars and telescopes you will see many stars including a number of red giants. The three brightest stars in the night sky, Sirius, Canopus and Alpha Centauri, will be sharing the sky along the southern Milky Way. The southern cross crux can be found in the southwestern sky after sunset and will get progressively lower during the evening. From New Zealand, crux will never set, it skirts along our southern horizon. To the northeast of Sirius, we find the dominant constellations of Taurus the Bull and Orion the Hunter. These are constellations recognised by most northern hemisphere cultures. The face of Taurus is outlined by the V-shaped asterism of stars known as the Hyades Cluster. In Greek mythology, the Hyades were the five daughters of Atlas and half-sisters of the Pleiades. After the death of their brother Hyas, the weeping sisters were transformed into a cluster of stars that was afterwards associated with rain. The brightest star in this group is Orange Aldebaran. In Arabic, the name means the follower, and this came about as a star follows the Pleiades across the sky. Aldebaran is in reality a foreground star only 65 light years away, while the other stars in the V are 153 light years away. Taurus's long horns extend down towards our northern horizon. Near the fainter of the two horns, telescopes will reveal the faint smudge of light called M1, or more commonly the Crab Nebula. This expanding cloud of dust and gas is the result of a supernova that was observed in 1054. The Pleiades cluster marks the bull's back, also known as the Seven Sisters, Matariki, Subaru, and many other names. They are a cluster of stars well known in both hemispheres, often called the Seven Sisters. Most modern eyes only see six due to light pollution. A good test of seeing in the darkness of your sky is to see how many stars you can count. Dozens will be visible in binoculars or a wide field telescope. This cluster is about 440 light years away. Its brightest stars are around about 200 times brighter than the sun. Orion in the northern hemisphere view has its shield raised towards Taurus and the club ready for action. The line of three stars marks Orion's belt. The line of fate stars above and to the left of the belt form Orion's sword dangling from his belt. A faint haze in the soil of Orion, known as the Orion Nebula, is a vast star-forming region about 1,200 light-years away. To most southern hemisphere skywatchers, the belt and sword form the pot or the saucepan. To marry these three stars were known as Toltoro. To the Mayans, Orion was seen as a turtle with three picture stones on its back. I on attack Rigel and Sate formed a triangular herb of Orion Nebula representing the smoke from the fire in the heart. This was seen as a place where the heavens and the earth were separated. And on that exciting thought, we wish all our listeners clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, John. So, we may have alluded to this earlier in the show, but we have no post this month. Ooh. Or email. Please Ooh. send we us some posts. sad. So, yes, again, charge your bank stamp. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> we do just really get very excited about post. We get too excited about post. Libby goes, Yay! Well, they get bonus points if they send in a postcard of Jodra Bank with a Jodra Bank stamp. Do Jodra Bank postcards exist? Of course they do. Ooh. So, go can... to the visitor centre, buy a postcard, and send it to us. <laughs> or go to the local shop in the University Precinct Centre where you can also buy Jodra Bank postcards. <laughs> and then you'll see us do little happy post dances. Yes, if you do send us a Jodra Bank postcard with a Jodra Bank stamp, I may film the happy dance that Libby does and put it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs>
So, given that there's a complete dearth of posts, <laughs> we had some posts on the forum. So, Physical says, very, very good podcast, guys. Thanks for that. He also says, you recommend some ebooks, Quantum by Manjit Kumar, and Turn Left at Orion is on Kindle, which is, uh, I think it's a book that sort of tells you what's in the night sky. Yeah, Turn Left at Orion is one that Ian Morrison has mentioned a few times. It's a very good book. So, you can go download it to your Kindle. Although, then, if it's dark. Yeah, you're not going to. I guess you can still use a red torch on a Kindle, can't you? It's not backlit. You can use a Kindle on a smartphone. And I don't know whether they can do a night vision Ooh. thing. Yeah. There we go. In fact, you could do it on an iPad or something and put a piece of red acetate over the surface of it. Mm. That might help. Who knows? Give it a go. Uh, also on the forum, Earth Unit says, Thanks for another great show. Again, lots of love here. It's great. Uh, he says, still loving those in-depth answers from Tim, smiley face. So thanks for that, Earth Unit. Everyone on Twitter, thanks as always to everyone for doing Follow Fridays and retweets of the shows and everything. And I can't remember if the new Radio Astronomy video featuring Tim came out before or after the last show, but lots of people have been tweeting that. And if you don't know about that, there's a new Radio Astronomy video <laughs> featuring Tim on the website and on YouTube. And that tells us all that happens at Georgia Bank. All that happens at George, uh, Radio Astronomy in general, and then a bit more specific about George Bank, and it's very good. And it was made by some guys at Salford University, so thank you to the CTV team for that. And on Facebook, we've had a post from Robin Reisner. Hey guys, greetings from Germany, and thanks a lot for the great job you do. It's always fun when iTunes informs me about a new Jodcast episode. And I actually didn't know that iTunes did that. Well, there's some very handy buttons that you can press subscribed, and you can get Jodcast downloaded automatically every month. That's so, pretty cool. Have a look on the website. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. I'd like to say thank you to Rob Izzard for being interviewed. The editors were Adam Averson, Megan Argo, Claire Bretherton, Mark Perver and Joel Radovan. The producer was Libby Jones. Until next time... Jod on. Bye. 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 Bye.